Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and find your way to Mark chapter 3 to that passage our friend Becky read for us a few moments ago. Mark chapter 3, if you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, there are several on the table in the foyer. Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Mark chapter 3, we're going to be diving into this story of another healing that took place on the Sabbath, which was a big deal. It ruffled a lot of feathers, and it led to kind of a climax of conspiracy against Jesus as people uh, conspired to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. You know, whenever, whenever the chance arises, whenever the chance arises, religion will always uh, seek to kill Jesus. Uh, religion will always seek to kill Jesus. It, it has to for its own survival. Because everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection, everything that he taught as he journeyed through the region of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom, it stood, uh, it was antithetical to the religious practices of the first century Judaic world. You just consider the basic definition of religion, the basic definition of religion is is humans, it involves the human attempt to appease God, the human attempt to do enough to earn God's acceptance, to earn God's approval, to get in with God by walking the proper path, following the proper teaching, following a particular kind of way that, that consists of rituals, that consists of morality, that consists of things that we do in order to uh, find ourselves right with God, but yet Jesus stepped onto the scene and he begins proclaiming a gospel of a kingdom that stood in stark contradiction to that approach. Therefore, whenever the occasion arises, religion will always seek to kill Jesus because Jesus possesses a unique authority and he expresses a message that utterly assaults the pride of our humanity. See, Jesus steps onto the scene and he looks at those he comes in contact with and he declares that there's not a single person, regardless of how devoted they are, regardless of how moral they are, regardless of how pure they are, regardless of how well-versed they are in their various religious practices. He says there's not a single person in and of themselves who have the spiritual fortitude in order to uh, gain access to God. That was one accent of Jesus' message. But then the ironic thing of what Jesus taught is that he had the audacity to say that was good news. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. The word gospel means good news, and it means that people in and of themselves cannot earn or gain access to God based on what we do, and Jesus says that's really good news. And people who heard his message, who listened to Jesus, they often scratched their heads wondering, well, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, Jesus, you're telling us that we are worse than we think we are, and you're telling us that, that we need to be saved. That doesn't sound good, but yet that's precisely what Jesus said. That's precisely what Jesus proclaimed as he declared the gospel of his kingdom. And so this often offended people. This often disturbed people. This often unsettled people. And the Pharisees were usually front and center when the feathers got ruffled and when people began to be offended. The Pharisees were some of the first ones in line. You see, religion has to eliminate a message of grace, a message that can, that can distinctly be described as gospel lest Religion cannot survive because that type of message is too radical. That type of message is too offensive. 
And yet this is the case that is being built uh, against Jesus. Beginning in the first part of chapter 2, you see the, the religious leaders of the Galilee and the region, the Pharisees and others, they start conspiring against Jesus. And this conspiracy and this conflict comes to a climax at the end of chapter 3 where they link arms with their enemies, the Herodians, in an effort to destroy Jesus. But let me just remind you of what led to this moment. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus there is is declaring forgiveness for sins, and he's doing something that only God has the prerogative to do. And so this caused the religious leaders to step up and, and accuse him of blasphemy. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can do that. And so they pushed back against Jesus in that moment. Then you drop down to verse 16 of chapter 2, and they begin to ask more questions of Jesus. These questions that are coming out of the fact that he's offending them because they see in that moment Jesus is eating with tax collectors. He's seated at a table with those the Pharisees look down upon. Outcasts, sinners, tax collectors, traitors. And they see this taking place, and they, so they accuse Jesus of being unclean. They accuse Jesus of being unholy. They accuse Jesus of being unworthy. How could he dare associate with those types of people? Then in verse 18 of chapter 2, you have a very similar dynamic as the Pharisees were kind of sizing up the followers of Jesus and they noticed that the disciples of Jesus weren't fasting. Therefore, they, they called into question their devotion. And if Jesus is their leader, that means they're calling into question Jesus' devotion. I mean, they, they don't seem to be engaging any, any, in any holy habits. They're not doing anything that corresponds with their faith the way the Pharisees understood it. They weren't fasting, and that was a problem in the religious leaders' eyes. And then, as the passage we saw last week in verse 24 of chapter 2, the disciples pluck some grain and they begin to eat. And the Pharisees viewed that as a violation, not of God's law as it is written in the Old Testament, but a violation of their interpretation of that law, their application of that law, the oral tradition that has been compounded upon God's law in that day. And so they accused the disciples of breaking Sabbath and they accused Jesus of kind of leading the way, allowing that to be. And so they're they don't like Jesus. They're, Jesus is doing things that is offending them. And the offense that Jesus is bringing into their lives comes to a climax in chapter 3, where in verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians conspire to have Jesus destroyed. And it happens at the end of a, a moment where Jesus brings restoration to a man with a withered hand. And he does it in front of the Pharisees who were watching Jesus. And he, and he performs this miracle on the Sabbath. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in this moment. So we pick up again in verse 1 and we see what went down just by way of reminder. It says that again, Jesus entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. It was healed. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So you take this moment, and you, and you consider with me uh, this evening as we step into this story. 
this story of describing confrontational grace, this story describing the way in which God's grace goes to work in the world. And as we step into this story, I want you to step into this story as if you're looking into a mirror. Because I believe each one of our hearts can and should resonate with the characters present in this moment. You see, some of you have stepped into this space today and you've brought in uh, a particular type of handicap. Perhaps you're sitting here tonight and you're uncomfortable wondering, well, can I really uh, worship God through Jesus? Is what Jesus did enough for me? Uh, There's so much shame in my life. There's so much that I'm embarrassed by in my life. There's so much in me that I want to keep hidden. I, I feel like an outcast. I do not feel like I belong in the kingdom of God or in the rhythms of the gospel. And so you've stepped into this space with a particular type of handicap and And if that's something you're struggling with, I want to encourage you to consider what goes down in the life of this man with a withered hand. But then there are others of us in this room who maybe, as we read through this passage, this is where the rub is going to fall. Maybe we're not going to see ourselves reflected in the shame of of a handicap. Maybe we're going to see ourselves being uh, reflected in the fact that there is most likely a well-fared Pharisee lurking in our hearts A well-fed Pharisee who's lurking in our hearts tonight and and we have a tendency to demand things from other people and we have a tendency to look down on other people based on their moral performance and, and we expect them to reach a certain standard before we pursue them in love and before we pursue them in compassion. We we expect people to reach a certain point before we would conclude that they are worthy of grace or they are worthy of compassion. And so there's an inner Pharisee just lurking in some of our hearts tonight. It shows up another way too as you and I begin to compare ourselves with other people and we actually take comfort in the fact that our sin and the source of our shame doesn't seem as intense as that of others. And if that's you tonight, as you look into this story, regardless whether you identify more with the man with the withered hand or whether you find just an inner Pharisee lurking in your heart, speaking things that are unworthy of the gospel, I want to look into the story and I pray that God's grace will confront us. And I pray that God's grace will confront us in two ways. If you find yourself wrestling with shame and embarrassment, I want you to discover the healing power of the gospel tonight. But if you're someone who's struggling with proud self-righteousness and that inner Pharisee, you need to choke him out, you need to silence him, well, how do you do that? Well, you do that through the humility that the grace of the gospel births within us. So we want to consider the gospel. We want to consider Jesus both for our healing and our humility because that's how we're going to respond to this passage, I believe, the way God intends. So let me voice a prayer for us, and then I'm going to point out a few things in this story and encourage you to consider, to consider it tonight. Father, I ask that you would speak to us now as we approach this passage. I pray that you would open our eyes to see what we need to see here. I pray that you would awaken our ears to hear your voice. I pray ultimately that your grace would confront us for the purpose of transforming us, that we would be that we would be healed and humbled by your grace and for your glory. God, I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, as you look at this story and the things that unfold here, uh, we're describing it a uh, confrontational grace. And you see three aspects of grace that I just want to call your attention to tonight. The first aspect is what might be described as the exposing grace of Jesus. It's the exposing grace of Jesus. It says at the beginning that Jesus entered the synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand. This man's hand was withered. It had shriveled up. It was paralyzed. Maybe it was tied to a stroke or some previous uh, suffering that has inflicted his body. So his hand is shriveled up and, and he's there. He's present. Now, understanding that that situation in the life of this man was most undoubtedly a source of embarrassment, a source of shame. It probably contributed to him being viewed kind of on the fringes of society. He might not be in the same situation as the leper was in that we looked at a few weeks ago, but it's a very similar kind of marginalized, uh, ostracized person due to his physical disformity, this distortion that has plagued his body. And so it's hindered him to some degree from contributing to society, whether it be through a vocation or whether that through be through full, unhindered participation, even in the synagogue where he is present now. And so he's there and he has this disformity that he most likely wants to keep hidden. This source of shame, this source of embarrassment, this source of of what causes him to be pushed to the frenzies, most likely this is something he wants to keep hidden, he wants to keep tucked away. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus calls this guy out. He looks at him. He locks eyes with him. And he says, come here. And if you're reading from, say, a New International Version translation, an NIV translation, it it goes on to say uh, that Jesus told the man to stand up in front of everyone. So he called this guy front and center. He had to stand there with his deformity, stand there with that which had caused him shame and embarrassment. And Jesus, in a sense, exposes him. And you can imagine the mixed bag of emotions that began to swell up within him. No doubt he felt fear. Perhaps he was afraid of what was about to happen. Maybe he was afraid of how the Pharisees would respond if Jesus did heal him in this moment. Maybe they would seek to ostracize him from the synagogue, not let him come back. The very same way they did to the blind man Jesus heals in John chapter 9. So there may be fear here as Jesus is calling him out, bringing him into the light. But then there's also, mixed with his fear, there's probably some hopeful expectation. Jesus' reputation is strong at this point in time. He knows Jesus has the power and the compassion to bring healing to the sick. He's been doing it time and time and time again up to this point. And so this mixed bag of fear and hope is swelling up within him as the healer looks, locks eyes with him and calls him out into the light, exposes his handicap. You see, this is one of the ways grace works in the life of, in our lives. Grace has a tendency to expose our particular handicaps. You see, when Jesus goes to work in a person's life, he's not coming to love us in general ways. He's come to love us in particular ways. He's come to deal with specific areas in our heart and specific sources of shame in our lives. And the way Jesus brings healing to our lives isn't by ignoring them or encouraging us to keep them back from him in the dark. The way Jesus encourages healing is by bringing them into the light, by exposing our particular handicaps that are in need of God's restoring grace. And so this is what he's doing here. He's calling this man out, grace exposing his particular handicap. And so let me just ask you, 
What handicap are you tempted to hide in this moment? What source of shame are you tempted to keep back from Jesus this evening? What source of embarrassment are you uh, wanting to keep concealed and you're not bringing into the light? You're not bringing to Jesus because maybe you're afraid of, of how he will treat you. Maybe you're afraid of how other people might treat you. But if that's the situation, if, if there's something in your life that you're trying to conceal or hide, let me encourage you with the exposing grace of Jesus when he calls things out. When he tells us to step out into the light, Jesus does so always because he intends to restore us. He intends to heal us. He intends to do the various things in our lives that he has done for this man with the withered hand. He doesn't leave him humiliated in front of everyone in the synagogue. He tells him, what does he say? He says, stretch out your hand. And the man responds, doesn't he? And this is Mark's way of describing faith rather than defining faith all throughout this gospel. Mark simply describes faith. And you see the faith of this man as he's responding to this call of Jesus. He steps out and when he tells him to stretch out your hand, that's precisely what he does. And the man's health is restored. His shame is covered. His embarrassment is dealt with. And I assure you, there's not one aspect in your life there's not one source of shame in your life that the gospel of Jesus and his grace cannot cover. There's not a single handicap in any of our lives that Jesus cannot bring healing to. And so Jesus is, you see God's exposing grace as he exposes this particular handicap for the purpose of healing it or restoring it. But then in verse 4, after the man steps out and he's standing there and all eyes are on him, including Jesus's, it says in verse 4 that Jesus then turns to the Pharisees and asks them a question. He asks them a loaded question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But then it says, but they remained silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at what? Grieved at their hardness of heart. See, what Jesus was doing in the life of this man with a withered hand, he intended to spill over into, into effect everyone else in attendance. The problem was the Pharisees weren't affected in a healing kind of way. Instead, what Jesus exposes with this question, yes, there are times when God's grace exposes a particular handicap or some source of shame or struggle that we're wrestling with. But then there are also moments where Jesus' grace exposes our hardened hearts. And when Jesus asks this question, this question was, a, was designed to bring out the true condition of the Pharisees' hearts. And it is described in verse 5 as hard-heartedness. And you begin to get this picture of of why religion is so antithetical to the gospel. You begin to get a picture of the type of heart religion can create in people. You might describe it as the recoil of religion. You might describe it as the, the recoil or maybe the unintended consequences of religion. When religion kicks back, it has a tendency to harden people's hearts by causing them to become self-righteous or to view themselves as superior to other people. Maybe you know what recoil is. If you 
Uh, I'm not a big gun guy. That's not my world. I don't really fly in that world. I don't navigate in that world. But when I was a kid, I had a cousin who became a cop, and he was. But before he became a, became a cop, he was really interested in guns. And so he got himself a, a pistol, a 9 millimeter, which was a pretty powerful little gun. And, and I remember my cousin going out into the woods to try it out. But nobody told him about recoil. Nobody cold told him how, how badly a pistol can kick back. And so he thought he could handle it. So he went out and he grabbed the pistol and he wasn't holding it correctly and he he began to he aimed at his target and he pulled the trigger but then as he did so there was a recoil action there was a violent response and he wasn't strong enough to handle it that it kicked back so hard it drilled him square in his forehead knocking him out leaving him bloodied on the floor of the woods eventually that that crack in his head turned into a, a scar and it created some rough patches on his skin because that's what that's the type of thing recoil can produce, And when it comes to the recoil of religion, when it begins to malfunction, when it begins to kick back, it creates hardened hearts. It creates scars in our lives that cause us to be calloused towards those who are in need. And you see the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts and how they're responding to this guy with a withered hand. They're looking at him, Jesus is looking at him, only when they look at him and Jesus asks them this question, they stand there in silence because they know deep down they can't speak a word in this moment. They know that God's law does not prohibit anyone from helping someone who is hurting on the Sabbath. In fact, the very intent and purpose of the Sabbath is to bring healing, is to bring restoration, yet the Pharisees have turned that good provision into a burden, and they're using the law now as a way of kind of pressing back against Jesus. And, and so they stand there in silence. And one scholar put it this way, that the silence of the authorities reveal that their religion was more about fulfilling conditions than about caring for the needs of others. And I assure you that if that's your approach to your religion, if that is your approach to Christianity... I want to warn you tonight that that's the type of religion God hates. If you are more concerned about meeting certain conditions than you are about caring for the obvious needs of those around you, you are engaging in the recoil of religion that will devolve into the hardness of heart, finding yourself living a life, the type of life which God hates. And that sounds strong, I know, let me, let me show you Isaiah chapter 5. Hold your spot here. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. You're going to see God express this. And he may, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah comes to the people of Israel and he speaks a word of warning to them because they are engaging in the recoil of religion that's creating hardness of hearts within them so that they're going through the, religion, the rituals of their religion, but they're not caring for the needs of those in their community, and it's a problem. So this is what God says to them in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12, beginning there. It says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of, of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, get this, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Here's why. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. There is a type of religion that God hates. And if we are more committed to our rituals and our routines, the practices of our faith that are devoid of the exercise of compassion, we are finding ourselves moving in a direction that God is not favorable towards This is what the Pharisees are guilty of in this moment. Their hearts are hardened. They've experienced the recoil of their religion so that now they are calloused towards this man in need and they're not willing to show compassion. They're not showing compassion. And you see why they are unable to in verse 5 because their hearts are hard. And you just consider the, the description of their hearts in this text. What does a hard heart look like? How do you know if this is taking place within you, if that inner Pharisee within all of us is is growing in its presence and influence? Well, we know that if we become accusative people. You see, a hard heart is an accusative heart. A hard heart is a type of heart that stands back on its heels and blames everyone else for their problems. That points out, well, the reason why you're in that situation is because you've made stupid decisions. Or you've been irresponsible. Or you have not been wise with your financial planning. That's why you're struggling. And although those things may be true in and of themselves, we do not want to fall into a hardened heart that that accuses people so much that we want to withhold grace from them because of what they've done. So the Pharisees are accusative in this moment. But not only do you see accusation here, you see an insensitivity. When Jesus asks the question, they they remain silent. They do not speak up. They are insensitive to what's going down in this moment and what could take place in the life of this man with a withered hand. Instead of celebrating it, they get mad about it and they actually want to kill Jesus. This is insensitivity at at its worst. And it's very similar to the description that Paul would give of of hardness of heart in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. Where we read in that verse that they, referring to fallen humanity, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are insensitive to the things of God. And so the Pharisees are so blind in this moment that they can't see the grace that Jesus wants to extend in this moment. So a hard heart is accusative, a hard heart is insensitive. But then lastly, in verse 6, a hard heart is destructive. In fact, a hard heart is self-destructive. When our hearts are hardened, we're just heaping destruction upon ourselves. Because the irony of this text is, in their efforts to destroy Jesus, they end up destroying themselves. Jesus is crucified, yes, but you know that he rises from the grave three days later. And when he steps out of the tomb, he kills religion. He crushes it. He's saying, look, your access to God is not dependent upon what you do, but upon what I have done. You want proof of that? I'm alive. So he kills the religion that these people are so 
infatuated with that is actually hardening their hearts towards the needs of those around them. So it's a destructive heart as well. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14, you read this verse, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, who submit, who humbles themselves before the Lord and lets God be God. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. It's a destructive, a destructive type of heart. And so you see exposing grace in this moment. He's exposing this particular handicap, but he's also exposing the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. And then you move into a picture of God's, what might be described as intolerant grace. You see exposing grace and intolerant grace because Jesus, look at how he responds to their hardness of heart. It says he looked around at them with anger. He got mad. He grew angry, and then it says he was also grieved at their hardness of heart. So he's looking at them now. He's locking eyes, not just with the man with the handicap, but with everyone in the synagogue, and his holy indignation, his righteous anger is aroused. He can't stand the fact that these Pharisees are playing games with this man's life. And so he's anger, he's angry, he's <laughs> angered about it. And I don't know if this image of an angry Jesus sits well with you. See, the reality is we live in a culture where our images of Jesus are so plastic he can't get mad. Our images of Jesus are so soft that we have no room for anger in him. But understand, Jesus gets angry. And he gets angry in this moment when he sees a person who was created in the image of God being treated so poorly by the religious leaders. And so although the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious system of of Judaism was intended to lead such people into rest with God and into a restored life. They are holding back from them due to their hardness of heart, and this angers Jesus. A guy by the name of N.T. Wright put it this way when he describes the need for a wrathful Jesus or a wrathful God. We want a Jesus who is capable of getting mad, and this is why. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath, of his holy indignation, of his anger, is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving, loving creator. It says he hates, yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful against child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. We want a Jesus who gets mad. We want him to get angry. Because we know that in his grace and in his goodness, he targets his anger towards appropriate objects. And the appropriate objects of his anger and his wrath is anything that distorts and defaces the image of God in people. When he sees sin contributing to the destruction of people's lives, that arouses his holy anger. When he sees suffering defiling people's bodies, leading them to sickness and death, it arouses his holy anger. And I believe when Jesus sees that happening in the hearts of those who 
identify themselves as his people, call themselves Christians, if their hearts remain unmoved or insensitive towards that, I believe his holy indignation is aroused. He gets angry when we play games with those who are created in the image of God and we disguise our games in religious garments. This is precisely what's going down in this moment. And this is precisely what later James, Jesus' half-brother, would write about in James chapter 1, verse 27, when he describes true religion, the, the type of religion that God doesn't hate, that which honors him most, that which he intends for the good of people. He says in James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to help those who can't help themselves, to defend the defenseless. This is what honors God. This is what, what pleases God. This is what God considers to be pure and undefiled religion. It is a religion where grace is given because grace is received. And if you want to ask the question, well, what does intolerant grace look like? What types of things does God, does grace not tolerate? Well, grace will not tolerate the absence of grace. If you are a recipient of grace, God intends for you to be a giver of grace. And he will not tolerate the absence of grace. If we have received grace, we have the privilege and the joy of giving grace to those around us. By loving people well, by serving people well, by bestowing dignity upon people who were created in the image of God, by caring for them as best we can as a result of the grace that God has poured into our lives. And if we're unwilling to extend grace towards others in proactive ways, that may be an indication that we have not yet received the restoring grace of the gospel. This is why in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he puts that qualifier in that prayer that sounds really intense. He expects us to forgive those who have trespassed against us in the same way that we've been forgiven. Saying, if you were a forgiven person, that should melt your heart in a direction towards forgiving other people. And when it comes to God's grace in our lives, this is the type of life, this is the type of heart God's grace produces. And God's grace will not tolerate the absence of grace flowing from us if we are recipients of his grace in the gospel. But not only will grace not tolerate the absence of grace, grace will not tolerate the rivals of grace. And this is where it really gets intense in this moment. God's grace will not tolerate the rivals of grace. And you know what the rivals of grace are. The rivals of grace are your own self-righteousness. The rivals of grace are, is your own sense of self-importance. Rivals of grace is that which leads you to want to look down upon those who are hurting and suffering and struggling around you. The rivals of grace is that which might compel us to view a man with a withered hand standing there in his shame, to view that person with disdain or with uh, a lack of value or a lack of worth as a result of his condition. That's what, that those are rivals of grace, self-righteousness, self-importance, that type of thing God's grace will not tolerate. 
But the good news of this text is that though, yes, you'd see Jesus getting mad, you see Jesus even grieving. He's not just mad, he also starts to grieve. He starts to sympathize with the situation as he realizes just how far fallen people are. That people would be so callous towards a man in need to withhold help from him and get mad about it. That type of callousness not only angers Jesus, but it grieves him. And it grieves him enough to do something about it. Because not only do you see anger and grief, you see compassion in Jesus. Because in response to this silent room, he looks at the man with the withered hand and he says, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored. He exercised compassion. And this compassion that Jesus shows in this moment was not a mere abstraction. It took the form of a tangible action. This is what compassion looks like. It is tangible. It is particular. We live in a culture and we have an orientation about us that realizes it is easier to love people in general than it is to love people in particular. It's easy to get excited about justice and mercy and compassion than it is to actually practice justice and mercy and compassion. But notice the compassion of Jesus in this moment. It isn't a type of generic or abstract compassion. He meets a particular need in a particular person. He heals a particular handicap all by his grace. He brings restoration to this man's body. He heals him. He serves him well. And this type of compassion that Jesus shows in this moment would, is rightly described as a, compa- a costly compassion. Jesus knew. He was setting up the room. He knew what was going to happen if he restored this man's hand, if he healed him on the Sabbath. He knew what was in the hearts of the Pharisees. That's why he asked the question the way that he does in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He knew that they were conspiring. They were just looking for an excuse, taking notes as they watched him, trying to build their case against him. He knew that if he brought healing to this man's life, if he showed him compassion, he knew it would cost him his life. And this is exactly what happened. The compassion of Christ is costly compassion therefore when you move to the end of this moment and you see the pharisees linking arms with the herodians it says they were plotting they were conspiring how to destroy him so i want us to think not just about the exposing grace and the intolerant grace of jesus i want us to think about the sovereign grace of jesus think about the sovereign grace of jesus that is surfacing in this moment These these leaders are conspiring to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him because he's shown such compassion. Jesus is a threat to them, and so they want to destroy him. And so they think that by doing so, if they can kill Jesus, that will solve their problem. But do you hear the irony in it? The irony of this moment, they think that by destroying Jesus, that will solve their problem, but that what they will actually do is fulfill God's purpose. So you have sovereign grace in this moment. Jesus pushing the envelope, showing that he's, he knows he's going to go to the cross. He's going to be crucified. He knows that's going to go down. And although these religious leaders are conspiring to kill him, Jesus is pushing the envelope. You see the sovereign hand of God just overseeing this whole moment. It's the type of tension that is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. 
the type of tension that affirms God's sovereignty and human culpability as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts 2, verse 23, this is what it said there. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, okay? According to the sovereign plan and purpose of God, Jesus was delivered up. He was crucified. He was destroyed. But then he turns the corner. He says, you, referring to the people there, you crucified and killed, killed by the hands of lawless men. And so you see sovereign grace in this moment that what, they, what these religious leaders would mean for evil in their efforts to destroy Jesus, God intended for good. Sovereign grace. The foreshadowing of the cross. Reminding us that Jesus' anger, Jesus' grief, Jesus' compassion would drive him to the tangible action of crucifixion as he goes to the cross where he would be ruined so that people like you and I could be restored. Where he would be ruined so that our hearts could be healed, so that our sources of shame could be covered by his redeeming grace. So that our hard hearts could be melted by his redeeming grace. Jesus was ruined on the cross so that we could be restored. This is sovereign grace. And when you think about this moment as Jesus confronts folks in this story, it's, not, it's very reminiscent to what went down in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the story of Exodus, you know that there was a moment where God's people were oppressed, they were in bondage, they were living as slaves in Egypt, and God wanted to set them free. God was angered by the fact that they were being so poorly treated, so he wanted to bring freedom and rest to their lives. And so he called his servant Moses, and he sent Moses to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And as you read through the narrative of the book of Exodus, you'll see a a theme that pops up that concerns the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And it's a unique story because of the ten times reference to Pharaoh's heart is made in Exodus, five of them say that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God. But then the other five says that God hardened his heart. And so you see this mysterious tension and you wonder, well, well, who hardened whose heart? And the answer is yes. The answer is, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened, the answer is yes, sovereign grace being displayed in that moment so that God would confront Pharaoh, ultimately overcome Pharaoh in order to bring his people into the life he intended them to lead. And his frustration with Pharaoh, his anger towards Pharaoh, the sympathy he felt for his people in bondage, he was mad in that moment because Pharaoh was treating his children as slaves. And Pharaoh was trying to keep God's children away from him. And so he flexed his muscles, so to speak. He brought redemption, so to speak. Sovereign grace. And when you step into Mark chapter 3, you see the Pharisees following in the Pharaoh's footsteps. They are trying to hold back this man from his rest in God. And this angered Jesus, this grieved Jesus, and ultimately this moved Jesus to show tangible compassion, to bring healing to his life through a powerful miracle. All foreshadowing and all leading towards his eventual death on the cross and his inevitable resurrection from the grave. So as you consider these 
these characters in this story. I don't know where your heart is clicking in this moment. I don't know if you're clicking more with the man with the withered hand and you're wrestling with shame or maybe you're clicking with the, the inner Pharisee within you and you're, and you're wondering, well, what am I to do in this moment? Well, let me encourage you or let me ask you the question. Are you going to respond in this moment with, are you going to repent or are you going to recoil? Are you going to press into Jesus or are you going to push back from Jesus? Will you repent or will you recoil? And so I want to invite you to consider the answer to that question as we open up the table. And as we open up the table this evening, I want you to, I want you to know that the table is not for anyone who is haughty. The table is not for anyone who is proud. But at the same time, the table is not for anyone who wants to hide their shame. The table is not for the haughty or the hiding. The table, the table is for those who have experienced healing and have been humbled by Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And so if that's you tonight, I want to invite you to the table as you assume a posture of repentance and you come and you partake of the bread and, and you hear the words of the gospel as someone tells you this, this bread represents the body of Christ given for you. And you dip it in the cup and you hear the words of the gospel, the, the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That this event through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is enough to heal you and it is enough to humble you. And see, so we partake it with that posture, we partake of it with that expectation. But if you're someone who may be recoiling in this moment and you're not quite there with Jesus, you don't know if you can trust Jesus, you don't know if you can really press into Jesus, let me encourage you to refrain from coming to the table and take some time to, to, think, to think well about what we've just read and some of the things that we've just covered. And, and in your worship guide, you'll see a couple of prayers that are designed to give you some language that can help you process maybe some of the things that are clicking in your heart, process some of the questions that you have, and just read through those prayers and and consider those words, and if something clicks and you find yourself wanting to press in and, and not recoil, let me invite you to the table and make this your first act of worship as a, as a child of God, as a son or a daughter of the Father. So let me pray for us, and we will open up the table for you guys to come at your own pace. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that your son Jesus brings healing to our lives that he covers our shame, he covers our embarrassment, he covers everything that we are tempted to hide. We, we thank you that we can trust him with all of that. And Father, we thank you that your son, his life and his death and his resurrection produces humility within us so that our hearts can be softened, our hearts can be melted, our hearts can be warmed towards you and towards others. And I pray that you're your grace would do that for us now. I pray, Father, if there's any callousness within us, I pray that your grace would melt it away, that your grace would overcome it, and that you would heal us in that way, and that you would humble us in that way, that we would be the people your grace has redeemed us to be, and that we would live the lives your grace has awarded us to live. Father, we love you, we praise you, we trust you now in Jesus' name. Amen.